This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, I had Emma Shortus from the University of Melbourne join me in the studio to talk about the US midterms as well as America on the global stage. Then, Ed Hill, campaigner at the Goongarra Environment Centre, joined me in the studio to talk about native forest logging in Victoria and its implications at the upcoming state election. And then, Dr Erin Richmond, Research Fellow at the School of Chemistry at Monash University, joined me in the studio to talk about her new research, which is detailed in an article on The Conversation. Drugs in Bugs, 69 Pharmaceuticals Found in Invertebrates Living in Melbourne's Streams. Yes, you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR-FM. My name's Amy Mullins and I have with me the lovely Emma Shortus. She's uh, very smart. She's so smart, in fact, that I believe she submitted her PhD. Not quite. Nearly? In two weeks. So close? Yeah. <laughs> really close. You presented on it though, didn't you? Yeah, I did. So I did a lecture on it last How week. How did that go? Yeah, well, thank you. It's, yeah. it's over anyway, which I'm pretty glad about. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Writing lectures is hard. It is really hard. And, and <sighs> for me, it was kind of cramming the last five years of my life into 35 minutes. Oh my which, gosh. You know, it took me a while to... to to do. How do you be that concise? Like how many revisions does that take? Oh, I don't even want to think about how many revisions it takes. A lot, <laughs> a, a, a heap. Yeah. Well, I'm in the midst of writing a lecture and I'm like, oh my gosh, the things lecturers, like I now have a newfound appreciation <laughs> yeah. for what they're doing. And I also have to footnote it. So that's another, Oh, that's you know, terrible. That's unfair. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, it's so unfair, but I, I have, I probably have 60 footnotes by the time I've finished oh, wow. this one. Cause yeah. I've like researched it to its limits which is probably me as anyone listening would know I tend to research but um Emma it's so great to have you back in I really appreciate your expertise and it's so um excellent to be able to talk about something that's very important particularly important on the world stage at the moment and We are talking about US politics and it is, as you said last time we spoke, so relevant to us. Sometimes we think it's just kind of a bit of a spectacle that we, you know, laugh at and kind of gawk at and go, oh my gosh, did he really say that? Um, But I mean, we do do that. But apart from that, it does have quite a lot of real world repercussions. And as I said in the intro, you know, we have now um, reached the centenary of Armistice of World War One, which was a shocking war. And, uh, and we saw our world leaders there, particularly the um, allies and the aggressors, former aggressors there together to, you know, recognise that we shouldn't be making war anymore, the huge costs of it. Um, but we did see, I mean, some interesting things going on, particularly when I watched the video, I was like, mm, this is so revealing. <laughs> We know that Angela Merkel has said she's not going to seek re-election, which is number one, a shame, number two, scary for Europe, and also means that she was kind of one of those people containing Donald Trump in a way. Um, but we, we saw, like, the, the leaders all in a row, in a kind of line, standing out there, and this is the, the event that Donald Trump turned up to because he actually didn't turn up to some because it was lightly raining. Um but we saw, you know, as I said, Vladimir Putin come along, shake the hands of, you know, Merkel, Macron, and it's all very like, oh, yes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then along comes Trump and he's like, oh, my old friend, you know, um, big thumbs up, yep. smile and a huge pat on the arm. And Trump's like, oh, yes, yes. Yep. And I was just like, oh, my gosh, it just is so 
Like they don't even try and hide it, you know. Why Why is there no pretense, you know, at least to pretend like massive foes of the US and Russia are like not besties because, I mean, this is really, isn't that, doesn't that add fuel to the Mueller fire? Look, I mean, I think it does for, for people who are already convinced. So, so from here, kind of watching watching Trump greet Putin in that way is is still it's pretty shocking. I mean, we say that about Trump all the time, but yeah. it is shocking. You know, it was constantly shocking, especially the real contrast, as you say, between the kind of the expressions on um, Merkel and Macron's faces there, looking at Putin, and then Trump with this kind of big garish smile, is pretty amazing. But you know, I I don't think it really hurts Trump at home because I think you know his his base supporters kind of aren't obviously aren't concerned about this Russia thing you know you've even seen some pro-Trump commentators come out now and say well you know if Russia are meddling in the election that's fine because it's helping us you know it's not such a bad thing <laughs> oh. if it's helping us you know we're wow. actually at this point of messaging. That's disturbing. Um, and I think you know Trump has said on, on multiple occasions he he admires Putin he he kind of aspires to be a similar kind of leader he does similar things you know making people wait not showing up to events being kind of incredibly rude which is what Putin does you know Trump has those kind of authoritarian tendencies and a lot of Trump supporters also admire Putin for the same reasons, you know, for his kind of ultra-conservatism, his, his efforts at suppression at home. They they kind of relate to that more than they, you know, than they do to Californians dying in fires, for example. Mm. You know, we saw Trump treating some, tweeting some pretty extraordinary things about that. So, yeah, it is, it is really shocking to watch and I think such a glaring contrast to the kind of general tone of these armistice events, um, which yes. are, are very sombre. And, you know, the, the photo of Trump kind of smiling at Putin and the contrast between Merkel and Macron kind of hugging, basically, and, and Macron tweeting it out and with just the word united, which, yeah. you know, what, a, what an extraordinary contrast. Mm, that was a really great image of the two and I just make made me think god I'm gonna miss her <laughs> yeah and she's I mean she's been a fixture of European and international politics for, for so long mm. and I think it'll be really interesting to see to see what happens in Germany um but I, I certainly think that that Macron in France kind of sees himself as now the the kind yeah, of the anointed one to Trump you know we've, yeah. we've seen him kind of trying to crush his hand in handshakes yeah. you know we're seeing all this kind of like <laughs> performance of masculinity that's that's so interesting to watch and I mean kind of horrifying yes but, disturbing. yeah so I think Macron will kind of take that mantle yeah well it is interesting that you know France is taking that up um yet Germany I mean the social democrats have been in such a disarray <laughs> it's very tragic but they've also seen the rise of a far-right mm-hmm. party as well which is disturbing so i guess merkel looks quite moderate now even though she's a conservative in the fact of you know when you compare to the types of rising um movements that we see not just in germany but in brazil in the philippines there's like so many um you know i guess yeah populist uh, right-wing governments coming through um, that there does seem Trump appears to be uh, not so alone at the moment um, and certainly yeah Putin isn't his only best friend <laughs> <That's right. laughs> which is scary um, but it, I was very surprised to see that um, that he had actually announced to, that he'd be coming to France in August and um, he, that was because Washington apparently um, was overcharging him for a military parade that he would have been having at home 
Yeah, that's right. So, so Trump had he went to a he went to a military parade in Paris, and and he was kind of overawed by the the beauty and the ceremony, and mm. decided he was going to plan his own military parade and in Washington. And this was Bastille Day, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's right. It yeah. was the Bastille Day. It was Day huge. And, yeah, exactly. And it was yeah. kind of put on for Trump, and he was sort of centre stage with, with Macron, and and he just loved it. You know, of course, you can totally imagine Trump loving that kind of military parade and sort of pomposity. Yeah, um, and it was at the Champs Elysees. Yeah, so yeah, this is it was like really striking. The centre of Paris. Yeah, exactly. So, so it was very striking and he sort of went home and decided he was going to do this the same thing this kind of demonstration of american military might and power and it turns out of course that these things are, are really expensive mm. it was going to cost i kind of remember it was in the, in the order of you know 80 million dollars or something kind of extraordinary yeah and so he kind of under pressure went oh well this is all wrought by the kind of local government so i'm not going to do it i'm not going to give them money and he was going to go to to these events in in France as part of Armistice Day. And it's really, I think it's really interesting because Trump's always talking about his respect for the military. You know, one mm. of his kind of favourite culture wars is around respect for veterans, re- respect for servicemen and women. It's why he's, he's kind of keeps going back to NFL players taking a knee because it's, he says it's disrespectful to servicemen. Yes. And, you know, then you have this kind of contrast with him not showing up to these events because it's because it's raining, which, you know, is kind of... It was drizzling. It was drizzling. Light Exactly. And, you know, I mean, Huckabee Sanders, his press secretary, said, you know, the helicopter couldn't fly because of the weather. But as, you know, multiple um, former White House um, staffers have said, there's always a plan B. You Mm -hmm. know, he could have got there. Everyone else got there. Of course he could have got there if he wanted to. And this is one where it was below, which was where 2,000 US Marines were killed. Exactly. So it's I mean, not this is, this unsubstantial. Is huge, exactly. This, that's a really good point. And, you know, so Trump's kind of demonstrating this this pretty, um, basically disrespect for these for these um, fallen servicemen and women. And it really contrasts with the, the, the language that he uses around this. So, and I kind of wonder if, you know, maybe that's something that does start to affect him because he also, mm. you know, he hasn't visited active service people in, in Afghanistan or Iraq. You know, he keeps saying he's too busy and he can't do it. Which His it, son-in-law did, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, he did. So, But, you know, you haven't had a presidential visit, no. which, you know, all former presidents have done quite mm. famously. Um, and I think that that stands in real contrast to, to his language around this. And I wonder if that does eventually kind of start to hurt him a little bit. I mean, not necessarily enough to change votes. No. But it is, you know, it is pretty hypocritical. And, and I think sometimes we miss from here just how revered um, service people and veterans are in the United States. You know, it's, it's sort of not not like it is here, that it's actually kind of even ratcheted up um, more and more. But, I, I mean, I guess the other thing I would say is that World War One just doesn't hold the same place in American historical memory that it no. does here and, and that it does in Europe. You know, the US didn't join the war until till much later in the peace, till 1917. So perhaps if it was a kind of um, commemorative ceremony for World War Two, he might have behaved a bit differently. But you know, you, you never, you never Who know. Knows? Trump. Yeah, <laughs> it's the day. Well, depends what kind of mood he's in. Yeah, exactly. Um, and Justin Trudeau, who uh, is the PM of Canada, he was there and symbolically took away his umbrella. And by this point, it was pouring rain at a certain memorial. And he said, this is nothing compared to what the soldiers endured, which was raining bullets, not yep. water. And um, so there, were, there are many pointed moments where leaders would subtly jibe and remark upon Donald Trump in some way. And so that was one of them. The next one, which I mentioned at the top of the show, was um, Emmanuel Macron, the French president, who when he was speaking uh, at the Arc de Triomphe in Paris, um, said and made particular point of saying, Nat, 
patriotism is the antithesis of nationalism. Nationalism is inherently treasonous in saying our interests first and forget the others. We lose the most important part of the nation, its moral values. Well... What a statement that is. Yeah, look, it's it's pretty strong and I think it's, it's of course, directed squarely at Trump and, and you could kind of see pictures of his face as, as this is happening mm. and, he's, you know, he's not particularly happy. And I think Macron's really making this really deliberate point about Trump's, especially Trump's use of the word nationalist. Um, you know, he said sort of quite recently, I'm a nationalist, we're not allowed to use that word. And the reason you're not allowed yes. to use that word is because it's basically a kind of white supremacist talking point. Yes. Um, and, and Trump's embraced it. So, so what Macron is doing is, is pushing back against this and, and kind of presenting himself again as the kind of stalwart against it. Um, but I think it's also, you, you, I mean, you were talking earlier about the rise of the far right in Europe. I think Macron is also, that's he's also talking to that. He's also mm. t- looking at Hungary. He's looking at parts of Germany, even parts of his own country where, you know, this is part of a kind of global phenomenon. And But I also think it's interesting, you know, I, I I sort of wonder if it's a kind of false distinction between patriotism and and nationalism. You know, do people really know the differences between those two things? Historians Um, do. Yeah, historians do. But not many others. Because I was thinking that myself, being a historian and, like, just, you know, studying Germany in World War II... The Nazis were nationalists. They were national socialists. I mean, these that, there is a distinction. I mean, some people, when I tweeted this, were like, oh, I don't know, are we splitting hairs here? Mm. But I think there is, particularly in the sense of America, yeah. having that underlying patriotism that has been there since the time began. You know, their patriotism for their symbols, their presidents, their constitution, that's a very, you know, American yeah. thing. And there's not necessarily anything wrong with that. That's That can be quite benign yeah, and absolutely. a positive influence, just like Bastille Day is for French people. And, you know, I'd, and then you've got nationalism and that is an actual phenomenon in history that has caused massive amounts of death. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. I, I mean, I guess I'd just say to that that, you know, Trump's made it fairly clear that he has zero respect for history, um, yes. for, for understanding history, for, for knowing where these kind of statements lead. And we've already seen where they lead in the US. They lead to violence. That You know, these these words, this rhetoric is directly connected to, to the behaviour of some people. You know, Trump's mm. in, with these kind of words, this nationalist rhetoric, he's emboldening certain um, certain elements of American society. And the same thing is, ha- is happening in Europe. So I think you're right that that's why Macron was making that distinction, particularly yeah. in light of the armistice um, commemoration, because... I think that the memory of that war looms so large in Europe and, and here um, and it's, it's, it's really important to remember, especially in times when, you know, Trump is kind of parading around on the world stage doing things like this and at the same time as he's, you know, kind of making friends with Putin and, and shaking hands and giving thumbs up, you know, John Bolton's talking about withdrawing from from nuclear um, proliferation treaties, you know, which is mm. which is a pretty scary thing. You know, these treaties have been in place since the eighties and have played a really big role in reducing the level of nuclear armaments, and they're just throwing them away, you know. So when the administration is is kind of con- contradicting itself in that in so many ways like that, you know, that's that's pretty scary. And, and Trump has has kind of you know shown an inclination to violent rhetoric and and to unilateral action, and so I think it's really again, the contrast between Armistice Day and what we're seeing come out of the Trump administration is, is, I don't think it's exaggerating to say, you know, sometimes it's pretty scary. It is, yeah. And I think, I just guess it's 
disappointing that the centenary just happened to coincide with the Trump presidency. <laughs> um, I wish we could have a do-over, but unfortunately we can't. Unfortunately. Um, but we are, you know, you know, have to take the higher ground on these things. But you did mention something which I think has flown under the radar at least in Australia, um, which is the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty. Um, And Donald Trump hasn't yet pulled out of that treaty, as far as I know, but he has slated that he wants to pull out of that. And um, as you said, it was signed uh, in the 1980s, 1987, by Soviet Union's uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, uh, as well as US President Ronald Reagan. What is the significance of that treaty and why did America and the Soviet Union, now Russia, um, sign such a treaty? Yeah, so this, as you said, it was signed kind of towards the end of the Cold War as a sort of culmination of a series of anti-proliferation treaties, um, which were hugely important in in kind of... um, warming relations between the Soviet Union and the United States, which I think it's really important to remember had gotten so bad that a couple of times, not just once, a couple of times almost ended in nuclear war, yeah. which, is, which again is kind of terrifying and it's easy to kind of gloss it over and say, well, it didn't happen. It got pretty close and it was basically historical contingency that, that stopped it. And so these treaties have been in place now for decades um, and have kind of regulated nuclear relations between these two countries. Now, Trump, I mean, Trump's threatened to withdraw from a lot of things. He's mm. threatened to withdraw from NATO, you know, a few, a few months ago, <laughs> as you might classic. remember. He did ago. withdraw from the Paris Climate Change Agreement, yeah, which yep, is tragic. Um, so, you know, he, I mean, he has form in kind of saying that he's going to withdraw from these kind of things and, and maybe he won't. Mm. But look, I think it is... It is really significant to kind of watch these the deterioration of relations and it suits Putin very much because it will allow Putin to um, I guess to put more weapons at the border with Europe so this has huge implications for European security and Eastern European security in particular yeah. to kind of um, create a deterioration of relationships there which affects NATO, it affects Germany and France which have, are very concerned about you know Russian increase in, in nuclear weapons in this way Um so it kind of serves Putin's interests, and I, I don't think it necessarily serves the United States' interests. But, it, I mean, it, again, it's it's kind of Trump being belligerent, it's Putin being belligerent, and um, the two of them, this, this kind of, again, this kind of performance of toxic masculinity where yeah. they, they kind of decide the fate of the world. And, you know, I think it makes me, it certainly makes me uncomfortable to think these are the two men deciding the fate of security in Europe. You know? Very, very. Um, and Trump has said that, uh, he believes Russia has violated the agreement. I mean, where does that that view come from that that for some reason, um, you know, it's not of value now all of a sudden? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I mean, I, I can't really speak to the evidence of, of Russia violating that mm. agreement or not. I mean, it's entirely possible that they are. Um, and that's well, happened how, in the past. how do we know? Exactly. And, yeah. and, you know, I mean, I guess you'd say the US violates agreements like this all as the well. Time. All yeah, the time. yeah. So it is entirely possible that, that Russia is violating these agreements. And, and the question of where this comes from right now, I think, is an interesting one. And it's always really difficult to know with the US and Russia kind of what's going on beneath the surface and mm. what's, what's not being reported. Um, 
so I, I guess to be perfectly honest, I don't know where this has come from. I think it surprised a lot of people that Bolton suddenly kind of announcing this. Um, but again, I think it just kind of allows Putin to be to look kind of powerful and important. And it's important to remember as well. You said earlier that Gorbachev is the one who signed this agreement. He's probably the, one of the most hated people in Russian yes. history in terms of leaders. So you know, I, I don't think Russians in particular will be concerned <laughs> about this because again, it allows Putin to kind of assert his authority. Yeah, on put the his mark on it. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. Yes, this is 3RRR-FM, Uncommon Sense, and uh, my name is Amy Mullins, taking you through up until noon, and as uh, I said, I've got Emma Shortest with me. So uh, we're moving from foreign affairs and international diplomacy onto domestic US politics, Emma. And um, and Emma, as I said before, joins me from the University of Melbourne, and um, she also works at RMIT. That's right. Quite controversial there, I've got to <laughs> I say. I know it's a bit of a um, cultural divide. Just a bit. <laughs> yeah. No, it's but I understand. The, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the importance of being broad-minded. That's right. And, you know, accepting. <laughs> um, so, Emma. Some big things happened in the midterms. Everyone was saying there was going to be a blue wave. It wasn't necessarily a massive wave, more like a kind of lapping. (laughs) We were hoping for a little bit more, at least progressive people of any kind. We're hoping that maybe this would hamstring the the president, sorry, to, to, I guess, rein him in a bit. The fact that they, the Democrats, have taken the House, yep. um, the lower House, means that uh, at least they'll be able to do something. Yeah, absolutely. So it, it is this kind of interesting question of when is a wave not a wave, yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, and it, you're, you're absolutely right. So I think, you, I mean, you can absolutely say there was a wave in the House, in the lower House. So the Democrats have taken back control um, pretty comprehensively. They've mm. gained 32 seats, so they've got a clear majority in the House. And that's a that's a big deal for Trump, um, not least because he's basically not going to be able to get any legis- legislation through unless the Democrats support it, which, you know, from here seems pretty unlikely. Oh, yeah, very unlikely. Um, so his, his legislative agenda is, is basically gone. Mm. I mean, having said that, you know, he, well, he wasn't particularly successful at that when he had control of the House. Does that protect Obamacare? It does. So okay. it means that repealing Obamacare will, is basically off the table, which is a huge victory for mm. Democrats and, and for American people, not the least. Um, but it's also, I think it's really important because what it means in the House is that Democrats get back control of the committee process. So committee, the kind of um, legislative and oversight process works through committees in the House and those committees are controlled by the majority party. So Democrats now have control of something, for example, called the House Investigative Committee, and they have the power to Mm. subpoena documents. So they have the power, the legal power to demand documents, to demand witnesses and demand testimony, which is going to be a huge headache for Trump because it means they can investigate him from all sides, not just in terms of Russian meddling, but in terms of his tax returns, for example, in terms of his son-in-law Jared Kushner's relationship with the Saudis, which is something we've kind of (laughs) has kind of disappeared. And also in kind of other areas, you know, we've talked every now and again about um, environmental regulations. So the House um, Oversight Committee can be looking into corruption in the Environmental Protection Agency, um, in the Interior Department, which looks after lots of, um, in, in terms of kind of oil prospecting and things like that. So Trump is basically, because of this this change in the House, he's going to have investigations coming at him from kind of every angle. And, you know, I would I would question whether his administration has the, even the kind of staffing ability yeah. to deal with that. So that's a really, really big deal. 
And um, we saw uh, the Republicans maintain this or keep the Senate, um, which is also, I guess, important. It's one of those areas where um, there are more men, I believe. Yeah, yeah that's It's right. that kind of male dominance that has been happening for years in yeah. that area. Um, why is that so? And, I mean, people have been talking about the major development that um, we've got record numbers of women in the house um, I mean why is that really important and how significant is it is it particularly you know is it a bigger record like a substantially bigger record is yeah, what I'm trying it, to understand it, it is definitely so it's, it's now a record number of women in Congress which is which is a certainly not an insignificant achievement and I mm. think it's it's a kind of model of this kind of two-track presidency so we've got this ultra-conservative president as you say a male by far male dominated senate and and it's worth saying that republicans have actually kind of increased the percentage of white men who are representing them in both congress and the senate mm. um but in in the democrats as you say there's been this kind of wave of women elected the youngest woman ever elected um to congress in new york um a couple of first nations women for the first time in in the history of the united states which is extraordinary some muslim women as well so we've seen this kind of a big shift in the Democrats at least and I think that mm. that will have implications for the Democrats going forward as the party's kind of torn in two directions which is this kind of younger more progressive path and then the kind of old, older school more conservative sort of Virginia Democrats I guess represented by Chuck Schumer who who we would kind of see as um, kind of more like small L liberals in the Australian yeah. political context. So I think it will it creates this very interesting dynamic in the in the Democrats, but it also means that you've got these kind of young up and coming progressives who are out to get Trump, right? Who they're out to get progressive reform, they're out to get healthcare, um, environmental reform, that kind of thing. Mm. So again, we'll see this kind of I think an even bigger split in the House at least, which is being pulled in all different directions. And um, and one of the really interesting things that I've seen some of the women talk about is the fact that each race or campaign that was run was really run um, in a very individual way. Like it wasn't, here's the Democrats' official campaign and everyone's kind of conforming to one type or, of messaging or, or platform. And you mentioned um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who, um, you know, is 29 um, and, as you said, is the youngest woman ever elected to Congress. She, you know, said, I can't even afford um, a place in Washington yeah until I start my job yep. um, because Washington housing prices are so bad. Yep. And then, of course, you see Fox News come out and belittle her for the fact that she can't afford it. I mean, it's, it does kind of highlight that, uh, I guess, divide or um, uh, real dissonance, cognitive dissonance between millennials, younger yep. politicians and, and people versus the old guard that you're just talking about there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, Ocasio-Cortez has been, she's been one of the best at kind of um, clapping back at that kind of criticism. She She's I think one of the better Democrats at, at kind of doing this this messaging, which is is uncompromising and yeah. is not striving to bipartisanship when that's basically impossible. I think, and as real contrast to someone like Nancy Pelosi, who's kind of mm. saying we'll have. I think the the quote was a bipartisan marketplace of ideas, which you know oh, isn't that inspiring. Gross. Um, but I think it it does. It also points, I think, to ideas that sometimes again are, are kind of a little bit difficult for us to relate to, and that's I think, and you pointed to it, the idea of wealth in mm. in kind of American culture. 
culture and this, you know, part of the reason that, that Trump is kind of successful and popular is because of this idea that he's, because he's so wealthy, you know, he must be really intelligent, he must yeah. be excellent, he must understand what's happening. And it's this kind of reverence of wealth and money that you see in American culture, which in a really interesting way is sometimes tied to religion as well, because if you've been this successful, if you're this wealthy, yeah. then you know, God must be favouring you for some reason. And that's, it's a kind of, it's a difficult idea, Mm. I think, to get your head around, but it is very deeply ingrained in some kind of aspects of American culture, not the least of which is, is Fox News. And that's kind of the, if you're poor, you must be bad. You must have done something wrong and it's your fault. You know, it's not a systemic failure. It's actually your individual fault. And, and Ocasio-Cortez in New York has been, has been really excellent in, I think, in, in challenging that narrative. And she's getting a huge amount of traction, especially as you say, with, with young people. Yeah, and there was, um, I guess, a couple of really key races that um, were capturing people's imagination, including Beyonce, um, (laughs) which was interesting. Um, I'd I'd never heard of Beto O'Rourke before, but apparently he's a big deal in America. Yeah, he is. So he's a a really interesting character. He's a former punk rocker, um, and he's he's incredibly charismatic. So he's running. He ran against Ted Cruz in in Texas, Mm. and you can't really get a greater contrast than you know. I'm not sure if viewers can picture Ted Cruz, but kind of a Herman Munster figure as compared to this kind of tall, incredibly articulate, charismatic guy who also has a very progressive um, policy platform. And he was kind of written off in Texas because, you know, Texas is deep red. It's, Mm. It's really conservative, really Republican. But he got incredibly close. And I think that's one of the really interesting things. You know, people are kind of writing him off as, you know, he lost, he kind of um, misfired his his campaign. You know, I'm not sure that that's true. Just even the fact that he was able to get that close, that his ground game in Texas was so strong, is, um, is really, really significant. And I think part of what we've seen in these midterms, you know, across the board is Democrats getting much better at organising at the local level and paying attention to those state contests, which, you know, over the last couple of decades, they've failed to do and they've Mm. really suffered because of it. Mm. And Emma, we're talking about um, the US midterm elections. Now, I just want to talk about something which I guess is a bit of a trend with Donald Trump. He has a really, I guess, a proclivity for firing people. Um, I guess it comes from his reality TV background of um, The Apprentice. And Jeff Sessions, who um, many people may have seen on Saturday Night Live, um, the parody at least of, uh, he's kind of a very curious creature. Um, He is the, was, sorry, was the Attorney General up until extremely recently. Um, Why did Donald Trump fire Jeff Sessions and why now? So, so Trump has long had it in for, for Jeff Sessions, basically since he appointed him Attorney General. Sessions was actually one of Trump's first real supporters. He was one of the first to kind of jump on that bag, bandwagon. But he very quickly fell out of favour with Trump because he recused himself from the Russia investigation. So mm. he basically... Which is he the was right in charge. thing to do. Yeah, it was absolutely <laughs> the right thing to do. And he only did it because he was basically forced to by political pressure. But so he he's recused himself, so removed himself from oversight of the Russia investigation, which infuriated Trump. And I think... A lot of observers of American politics, like me, thought Sessions was gone months ago. Mm. It was kind of surprising. You know, once Trump's decided he doesn't like someone and that they've got to go, they generally go pretty quickly. So Sessions kind of held on for a long time. But I think because of the midterms and because Republicans were able to hold on to the Senate, Trump was emboldened and decided that Sessions had to go. Um, 
So, you, I mean, he, technically he resigned. He wrote a letter saying he resigned, but mm. the resignation was at Trump's request and the letter was not dated. So, you know, we know this has been coming for a long time. And because Trump's got the Senate, um, he can theoretically replace Sessions fairly easily because that, that appointment has to be confirmed by the Senate. So, I mean... It's not exactly clear what what it means yet that Sessions is gone because he wasn't overseeing the Russia investigation, but I think it's a very clear indication that Trump is going after the Russia investigation. He wants Mueller, um, Robert Mueller, who's heading the investigation, former FBI director, he wants him gone. He's wanted him gone for a long time. Um, And I I think he will will continue to to go after him. So he's appointed... Trump has appointed a loyalist, basically, as, as acting attorney general, mm-hmm. a guy who said he wants to see the investigation end. He thinks a good way to stymie it would be, for example, to just take away its budget so, you know, Mueller can't pay his staff to do the investigating. Um, How which- many people would do it pro bono? Yeah, I think, think a lot about of people. It. I think a lot of people. And, and or crowdfunded. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think, look, I think Mueller, you know, we shouldn't underestimate Robert Mueller. He he has prepared for this eventuality. Yeah. So we certainly haven't seen the, the end of this investigation yet. Um, there there are rumours, and I would, I would emphasise rumours, that um, he's got all these indictments up his sleeve. And look, I, I mean, I'd be very surprised if there aren't more indictments and more charges coming from this investigation, um, particularly look out for, for someone like Donald Trump Jr. Um, to be indicted. Um, again, uh, it's all, all rumours. This has been a pretty watertight investigation, but mm. there's certainly more to play out um, as it as it uh, sort of unfolds. And it, it's it's not in cl- entirely clear, I think, what the legal situation of the investigation is yeah. right at the moment. Well, presumably Trump would choose someone who doesn't need to recuse themselves from the investigation. Yeah, yeah. So you would think that? <laughs> but the guy he's appointed, um, Whitaker, I think his name is, the guy he's appointed um, is Isn't a Trump loyalist. Yeah, is... so he's, sorry, he's acting. Yeah. He's appointed as acting and I have to um, confirm someone. But Trump will, will try and, I, I assume, sort of try and appoint someone who, who won't need to recuse themselves. But but any Trump loyalist, I think, is probably going to be implicated in mm. some way, is going to have said something about this investigation. The question is whether the political pressure will be enough to force them to recuse themselves. So, so again, there's a, there's a lot to play out here. Very. I think this one's just going to be going on and on and on, um, which is frustrating for many people. Um, But it it was interesting that the Democrats who have been interviewed said, well, although the Trump thing and that the investigation has been in the background, it wasn't like the main focus for us and still won't Mm. be the main focus for us. Yeah, I I think you're right. Um, I think, I mean, the the investigation went quiet over the midterms because Mueller doesn't want to be seen to influencing politics. But I think Democrats, you're right, the Democrats aren't talking about that investigation as much. They're just Mm. letting it kind of chug away in the background and I think trying as best they can um, to not kind of embroil it in this partisan politics um and i think that's a good strategy and you know it's for the same reason they're not talking about impeachment that much the people talking about impeachment are are in fact republicans and that's because that kind of plays into trump's narrative about being under siege about a witch hunt about people kind of being out to get him and i think in within the democrats at least there is a push to not talk about that and to talk about an alternative policy program so to not just be anti-trump but to offer a real alternative in terms of policy in terms of things like 
healthcare, in terms of protecting women's rights, in, in terms of economic um, inequality as a real contrast to Trump because I don't think it's mm. enough and we've seen that in the midterms to just be anti-Trump. You no. have to offer an alternative. Exactly. And it's brought up this um, question of who's going to take over, who's going to lead the Democrats yep. and obviously there's plenty of time to <laughs> yeah. decide that. Um, but interestingly, Hillary Clinton didn't rule out putting her hand up when yeah, she was asked. Um, so I'm, I'm not quite sure about this, about whether it was an aide who said that or whether it was Clinton who who's, wouldn't rule it out. And I, I mean, look, maybe she wouldn't, maybe she would run again. I mean, from a, maybe I'm projecting, but I can't really imagine, you know, putting yourself through that, that again. again yeah. And I, I think there's a real push in the Democrats, at least for, for renewal, for a new face. Um, so people are already talking about Beto, for example. You know, yes. he, is, he is endorsed by Beyonce, so you can't, <laughs> you can't get a much higher endorsement than that. He's the next Obama. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And yeah. look, I, you know, I think, as you say, like 2020 is an eternity yes. away and we didn't know who the nominee was you know Trump didn't appear till kind of the year before the, mm. the presidential election so who honestly who knows what will happen after that but look I think an outsider probably has or, or a young up-and-coming Democrat who doesn't kind of have the history in Washington will probably have will maybe have kind of more of a chance to, to offer more of a compromise to Trump uh, sorry a, a contrast to Trump mm. and now Emma just one last um, comment slash query uh, Christine Blasey Ford we saw come for and accuse um, now the person who is on the Supreme Court, Brett Kavanaugh, of um, sexual assault when she was 15 and he was 17. And she now has had to move house, I believe, four times and cannot return to her place of work as a lecturer and academic. What does this, I guess, signal to any woman who, um, you know, comes forward and she reluctantly came forward. It was only after um, her assault being revealed against her wishes. I mean, what what does that signal, I guess, in America in terms of how um, women are being yeah. treated. Yeah, look, it's, I mean, it's just disgusting, isn't it? We, we spoke before about this kind of record number of women in Congress and how significant that is. And you couldn't get a bigger contrast to this this woman who, as you said, reluctantly came forward. She felt it was her civic duty to do so. And she's now had her life torn apart. And the reason she's moved is because she has to keep moving houses is because her life is being threatened. The life of mm. her children are being threatened. And, and it, I mean, especially in the context of American politics that violence is is real, real you know yeah. and it's and it's increasing you know we've seen trump um st- trump supporters kind of mailing pipe bombs to to people in the media we've seen um you know more than one mass shooting in the last couple of weeks and so this kind of violent tendency in american politics is is pretty shocking and it sends a very clear message to the to women in this context you know when it, undoubtedly, there are men in Congress who, who have done this kind of thing. Yeah. And I, I mean, I wouldn't come forward. I don't know about you. You know, that message is pretty clear. You come forward and you put your life at risk to, to potentially for no, for no end. You know, Kavanaugh mm. was still confirmed. He's now sitting on the Supreme Court and may decide the result of elections in Florida. He may decide... Um, what women are allowed to do with our own bodies. Um, so, yeah, it sends a pretty clear message to, to American women, um, to, to women, I think, probably all over the Western world. And, again, it's a, it's representative of this two-track system that we have in the US. You know, on, on the one side, we've got progressive women being elected to, to try and force real change and then mm-hmm. things like this happening to, to women like Christine Blasey Ford, and it is, it's horrifying. Yes, and it raises the point that um, we all need to pray for Ruth Bader Ginsburg whether we're religious or not because 
her health deteriorated recently and she is a progressive uh, Supreme Court justice and we certainly don't want another situation whereby Donald Trump needs to appoint another. Yeah, look, and I mean, if that situation does come, does come up, he's he's got the Senate and, mm. and Republicans will support him to appoint another conservative judge. So I, that's definitely something to watch. Um, I, I mean, I guess say that Ruth Bader Ginsburg, she's back at work. She's tough. Know, she's pretty tough. Very tough and fabulous. <laughs> Thank you so much, Emma, for coming in. It's been really great to chat with you. And as usual, um, you know, there's just so much happening, um, but it's all really important. And I'm so glad that you could come in and, and analyse it with me. Hey, it's my pleasure. Anytime, Amy. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. You are tuned in to Uncommon Sense three on three triple R FM one oh two point seven FM on your dial. You can also stream it online or on the app. There's so many ways to listen in. And uh, I have with me in the studio Ed Hill, who is a com- campaigner for the Goongarra Environment Centre, which is if you're unaware, in East Gippsland. And he's also involved with Friends of the Earth, which is um, in Collingwood. So he's in here today, which is great, um, to talk about a really important state election issue, which is native forest logging. And, um, yeah, you may have heard this topic quite a few times on this show because it's really important. And uh, I've spoken, you know, with people like David Lindenmeyer, who has talked to us about the really, really important science behind why these native forests are vital, particularly old growth trees and the habitat um, that they provide, but also the, the inherent value of these trees themselves without even talking about um, the rest of the biodiversity of these regions. So I'm really excited now to talk to Ed again and welcome him now. Hi there. Hi, Amy. It's great to have you in. And um, I know we spoke uh, a couple of months ago and we were talking about um, a really important issue, which was the Greater Glider and uh, the experiment, in inverted commas, that was being conducted by Vic Forests, Mm -hmm. which is our state-owned logging company. Now, that sounds like an oxymoron to me because to have a logging company that's state-owned that logs state-owned forests just doesn't really compute mentally. Um, but, I mean, what for those who are unaware of, the, I guess, the current history behind um, Vic Forests and, and the controversy around their conduct in terms of logging in this state, um, you know, what, have, what kind of activities have they been undertaking and, I guess, what, has been, what have been some of the controversies um, around, I guess, it, times where it appears that they may have breached um, regulations and legislation? Sure. So um, logging is astonishingly still occurring in native forests in in Victoria. Um, Old growth forests are logged in East Gippsland. These are forests that uh, some of which have uh, never been logged or completely untouched before. Um, Forests on the north east, to the north and east of Melbourne um, are also still being logged in the central highlands. Mm, This is the area that's proposed for protection in the Great Forest National Park. Um, And the logging is done by Vic Forests, uh, as you said, the state-owned company um, who's sort of uh, constantly embroiled in in controversy. Um, Their operations are really having an extremely uh, damaging impact on the environment. Uh, Victoria's forests are home to 
a number of threatened species um, such as the greater glider um, and the, our faunal emblem, the Leadbeater's possum. And as you've heard from from the experts that you've had on the show um, previously, a lot of these species are, are being driven closer towards extinction because of the logging that's uh, that Vic Forest is uh, is carrying out. They're a state-owned agency, which means the they function like a company, uh, but they are actually entirely run off government money. So yeah. the sole shareholder is actually our treasurer, um, Tim Pallas, um, as the government as a government business enterprise. They don't uh, they only have one shareholder who's essentially uh, or who is the treasurer. The treasurer. Yeah. Um, so they function entirely off public money, um, logging a, a public resource. Most of the trees that they're logging in Victoria are actually turned into paper, um, which is pretty astonishing. There's a there's a paper mill in Gippsland in Maryvale where reflex paper is made. Uh, and a lot of uh, most of the forest, about it's about eighty eight percent of all the wood that's cut in Victoria mm. uh, ends up uh, ends up as pulp. Um, so it's 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 a massive environmental problem. It's amazing that it's still occurring. Um, and unfortunately, successive governments, both Labor and Liberal, just uh, have failed to to act to to solve uh, this this massive environmental problem and and protect our forests. Mm. And the Department of Environment, Land, Water, and Planning are meant to oversee. Uh, the regulations and Vic Forests and the way that it conducts itself. Um, And there's been a lot of talk about the fact that um, really the -the on-the-ground monitoring has been left to organisations such as yours um, where, and you've you've done this recently, is that you, um, as a group of citizens, citizen scientists, ecologists, um, you know, go around these forests to survey and look for animals such as the greater glider, the leadbeater's possum a range of other um, endangered species and i guess see how many are actually residing in areas that are um, meant to be logged planned to be logged and or have been logged um, and you know also survey how many may have died as as a result of logging Um, what are some of the more recent and um, i guess revealing circumstances or examples where um Vic Forests has been, I guess, putting the lives of these animals at risk. Yeah, sure. So um, we 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 do a lot of uh, this sort of research where we, where we conduct um, surveys for threatened species in areas that are scheduled for logging or are being logged, um, simply because yeah, the department fail to in their role as the regulator, so the burden falls upon. Uh, the community to to, in, to to get out there and and see that uh, the laws are being followed, the rules are being followed, and Vic Forests have shown a systemic failure um, when it comes to sticking to these these rules. Um, most recently, um, there was a a, a very controversial uh, operation in East Gippsland um, where rainforest was illegally logged, um, and the environment minister. Um, uh, just failed to have control over her department mm. to, to actually get them to prosecute for a number of very serious uh, rainforest breaches where rainforest had been illegally logged. Uh, it was exposed in the media, this failure, and um, prosecution eventually was... Charges were eventually laid against Vic Forests uh, and th- there was a criminal charge laid against them for logging the protected rainforest. It went to court in the Melbourne Magistrates uh, Court, but in... 
uh, quite a quite amazing set of circumstances. The the department who really really failed to hold Vic Forest accountable and actually appropriately regulate their practices, they failed to fill in the charge sheet uh, uh, in the right way. Basically, they they stuffed up the charge sheet and. Mm. Um, didn't put the correct information on it and as a result the court threw the case out and Vic Forest were never held accountable. Mm. This angered the government because it was obviously a massive embarrassment and then they commissioned a independent review of the department's uh, regulatory practices um, to, uh, where they established a panel to, to get, try and get to the bottom of it. Um, but the, re- the report from the independent review has been sitting on the minister's desk for for weeks now and we haven't heard a, a peep out of them. Um, so we have no idea um, uh, whether any action at all from this review will, will take place. And I guess the, the, the big problem that we have here is that we have a government logging agency being uh, regulated by a government department and the government's doing the logging and then the government's turning a blind eye to when the loggers um, you know, breach the law and they're not being prosecuted and, and held accountable. And we see yeah. that um, that blind eye approach uh, also coming out with um, in putting in place protections for threatened species that they're supposed to, such as the greater glider, which we spoke about um, last time I came on the show. Um, this is a threatened species that lives in uh, in forests, old forests that have trees that are over 100 years old with, yep. with large hollows. And it's supposed to have an action plan that this the current Labor government was supposed to put out an action plan to protect this species. It's well overdue. It's mm. been listed as vulnerable to extinction for about a year. And instead of releasing an action plan, we have uh, an absurd situation where Vic Forest, the government logging agency, is actually now conducting an experiment on this species, logging high-quality habitat, literally to see how many die. Uh, and, you know, David Lindenmeyer, who who you've had on the show before, likened it to the terrestrial equivalent of uh, so-called scientific whaling, uh, which is exactly what it is. And it it just highlights the sort of hands-off approach that this government has where they allow this logging agency to do uh, basically whatever they want um, and act as a law unto themselves. And unfortunately, it's native wildlife, rainforests and old growth forests uh, which uh, that are paying the price. Yeah, and there's a massive backlog of action plans which they're legally required to create. Um, it, what kind of impact does that have when there is no official plan? Would, would having an action plan impact upon uh, the the conduct of Vic Forests and the, the, I guess the areas they choose to log? Yeah, well, the action plan is supposed to set out sort of they call them prescriptions or, or, or rules that um, uh, protection rules uh, that would restrict uh, logging uh, in in certain ways in high quality um, areas of habitat. A lot of the action plans are understandably quite weak and skewed towards the interests of industry rather than designed uh, in the best interests of of the species and what the science is telling us the species needs. Um, but it, it, it would, the provision of an action plan would uh, go some way to better protect this species. But unfortunately, um, the logging industry is so powerful in this state and the issue is so political um, that the management 
and protection of these threatened species has become extremely politicised, so much so that uh, we are seeing a massive backlog of, of uh, action plans that haven't mm. been written um, because every time one is written, it's going to have an impact on the logging industry and that's going to have um, uh, political implications because the logging industry is is very powerful in, in in with the influence that they have over the government so um this is this is why we've got this situation where no, nothing is being done um because the threatened species protection has become so politicized and rather than acting in the best interest of the species action plans and protections for species are just just not being put in place mm. and i know that it means that um you know when these official processes are not working as they should and the oversight is not necessarily there not only do, do groups like gecko and friends of the earth submit these reports to the department of environment land water and planning but there are many activists who when the bureaucracy is taking a very long time and I guess it's going to be too late by the time it conducts whatever process it needs to take that there are activists out there who are literally blockading and preventing logging from occurring by um, you know setting up camp in that spot you know um, literally being on trees uh, old growth trees to stop this from happening and this is a last resort kind of measure because mm. I'm sure not everyone wants to spend their time <laughs> like stopping you know logging from occurring but I mean there's a lot of those activities happening right now like that have just been happening very recently yes um, there's actually just last week uh, a, a group of activists that uh, set up a blockade of uh, a beautiful forest on Mount Borbor um, which is being logged for paper. Um, it's home to threatened wildlife. Actually, a koala was found in there um, mm. a couple of weeks ago. Um, as were greater gliders. There's a lot of old, there's a lot of old trees that are over 100 years old. Um, it's it's being logged, and these these uh, incredible people, um, as a last ditch effort, um, they went out there and established a, a blockade where a person was in a um, in a tree sit, so sitting up a tree yep. in a platform and that platform is attached with ropes to logging machinery, which mm. is preventing that logging. And uh, they made a stand and took a, took, took, uh, stopped the logging for quite a few days and got a bit of media attention and put some pressure on the government. But the, you know, the, the, the might and power of the, the, fourth of, of the, of the government is um, always going to be a lot more, uh, you know, powerful than than these these under-resourced uh protesters um so the yeah the blockade was broken up um and about a year ago there was also a big uh blockade in the quark forest in far east gippsland um where we established a a blockade to to, to prevent logging of an area of old growth forests that we believed to be again, uh, unlawful mm. and that blockade stopped logging for about 10 days and during that period lawyers in the city um, were successful in uh, securing a supreme court legal injunction to um, prevent logging in that area from from going ahead so that was a that was fantastic because the we got to pack up the blockade and there was no need for the blockade because yeah. the court had actually stopped it. Now, that injunction led to a Supreme Court case which is actually going to trial in December um, and the 
Department of Environment, Land, Water and Planning are being sued um, by environment groups for failing to meet their obligations to protect old growth forests. Mm. Um, and there's currently 33 areas of old growth forest that are planned for logging in East Gippsland that are subject to the case. And the government are fighting the case and they're literally fighting for their right to continue to log old growth forests. And if they win, it will pave the way for logging in those 33 areas. Currently, the case is preventing logging in those 33 areas of old growth forests. Uh, But the trial will be in December and depending upon the outcome, uh, we'll see whether or not those areas are in fact logged. Um, so yeah, there's a lot going on. There's blockades, yeah. there's legal action, there's on the ground work to do, uh, you know, threatened species surveys and, and submit reports to the government. Um, there's sort of pressure coming at them uh, at all from all angles, but unfortunately, um, it continues. It's really shocking that I mean, you, there's so much effort and money put into continuing native forest logging when if you put effort into establishing plantation forests that could be an alternative source for these companies who you know want to make paper um i mean there are so many other ways of doing this creating products Mm. rather than logging old growth forests in fact i recall um reading about the fact that old growth trees are not even particularly good source material for creating paper um, because they have so much variation that it's actually easier and better to be logging plantation forests for that particular product. It just really makes me wonder that if you're a pragmatist and you're a person of rational thought, why would you not think of things like alternative sources and pursue that agenda? Mm. Yeah, it's a good question. And there are there is a huge plantation resource in Western Victoria um, that's actually actually booming. Portland is now the biggest um, export port of hardwood wood chips in the world, and these mm-hmm. are all plantation grown wood chips. Um, but over in Eastern Victoria, uh, whilst, whilst in Western Victoria there's an excess of plantation um, pulp, but in Eastern Victoria where um, you know, still using native forests um, to produce these pulp, th- this pulp to make to make paper, and there are so many other alternatives, even non-timber sources of fibre, yes. bamboo, um, bamboo, hemp. Um, yeah, there's there's a there's a lot of different options out there, and the industry really now is in a massive has has experienced a massive downturn, uh, and this is because decades of mismanagement and overlogging has actually now left. Uh, the industry with um, very little wood left that's actually loggable and um, the mountain ash forests that grow in uh, north and east sort of to the east of Melbourne in the central highlands areas Yarra Ranges around Warburton and Marysville um, there's only about five years left of logging in Mm. these forests before there's actually literally nothing left for the industry to take and and this is because uh, the 2009 fires massively reduced uh, the areas that were suitable because it took out a lot of the resource. So then the logging was intensified in the areas that uh, remained unburnt. And there's only there's really not much time left. So change is inevitable in the industry uh, and a transition into plantations and non-timber sources of fibre is not only essential um, to 
in order to protect what's left of these environmental assets, but it's also essential to provide a, a future for employment in, in these regional areas. Yeah. Um, and, and the government has to act now um, because it's going to be so much harder to act down, further down the track. You know, in five, five years' time, we're going to have a trashed environment and an industry that's even in worse shape than it is now, and it's going to be harder to uh, transition those jobs into alternative um, industries or into plantations and non-timber sources of fibre, but it's also going to be really uh, bad because we've the environment will unfortunately be trashed and all of these forests will be gone forever yeah. um so decisive actions really needed from this government right now and they've had four years um to to, to deal with this issue and um yeah so far they've they've completely failed yep and i mean the the things that people may not be aware of is that particularly as an example, the Central Highlands, um, they're really important habitats for the whole state, including Melbourne, because of um, its contribution to Melbourne's waterways, its contribution to reducing climate change and emissions. I mean, this state government talks about their environment credentials in terms of climate change and renewable energy and that is apparently a differentiating factor between themselves and the Liberals and yet there's just this kind of real gap between you know talking about climate change and then talking about logging and I mean I guess they're seen as very distinct things when in fact they're entirely the same. Mm. Absolutely Um, it's it's astonishing, actually, how uh, much attention the Andrews Labor government pays to renewable energy. They're, they're great on renewables. They're uh, rolling out renewables all over the place. Mm. Uh, and they're not a bunch of climate sceptics like, no. like the madmen in Canberra. Um, but they are continuing to log these forests, which uh, are some of the most carbon-rich forests on the planet. So the forests just out of Melbourne in the Yarra Ranges... Um, uh, the mountain ash forests have been heavily researched. They've been they're some of the most studied forests in the world, uh, and there's been a number of uh, research projects and papers published that have found that these forests store more carbon per hectare than any other forest type on Earth. Mm. So they are some of our greatest uh, stores of carbon and our greatest assets to mitigate climate change. Yet we are logging and burning them to produce mostly single-use paper. Um, and, you know, any climate policy is incomplete without a policy to protect these natural uh, uh, carbon banks, which are fighting climate change. And um, whilst this government is is great on renewables, you, you can't have a uh, climate policy um, without a policy to protect these forests it's um it it just doesn't make sense to be and and the logging and burning of them is creating huge amounts of emissions so when they go and they they, when they log a forest they log these mountain ash forests they clear fell all of them massive like 50 hectares um dozens and dozens of football fields uh in in one area just completely cleared and then a lot of the wood is left behind there's a lot of debris and wood that's left behind after they um after they take what they want out and then they set fire to it uh and these post-logging burns which are they come over the helicopter and drop like a napalm like substance and it 
you know, it, it causes this massive mushroom cloud of, of smoke and that's where the emissions are, are just getting pumped out into our atmosphere. So li- they're literally burning the most, cutting down and then burning the most carbon, some of the most carbon-rich forests on the planet. Uh, it's, it's having a, a huge impact. Not only are we losing the carbon stores, but mm. we're actually creating heaps of emissions from doing it. Um, so... Uh, yeah, I mean, hopefully it's eventually this government or the next government, depending on the result on November 24, will will realise that these um, these essential uh, carbon stores have to be protected, um, you know, and and, and, and and a climate policy has to include uh, their protection within it. Yeah, and this is not really a foreign concept to a Labor or Liberal government in the sense that these governments in the past have established and created huge amounts of new national parks and extended pre-existing ones and it's a legacy of which those governments should be proud and yet this um, particular government has not created even close to the similar amounts of um, native forest area that's protected. Mm. Um, And it's really surprising that that would be the case given how uh, progressive and forward-thinking that this government is in general, particularly, as I was saying earlier with you, around social issues. Um, You know, it's it's done a huge thing by um, advancing many social issues in this country, especially family violence is um, just one example. So um, I'm just thinking like why, um, (laughs) it's it's hard to ask why when it just, it doesn't make any sense, but what are the kind of stakeholders in this situation beyond the environmental um, supporters, I guess, those who are are seeking to um, conserve our great old growth forests what are the stakeholders that are preventing politicians from acting on this issue sure well the forestry division of the construction forestry energy mining union the cfmeu um have historically been uh extremely opposed to any form of protection of native forests um almost to the point where it's ideological rather than actually based upon any rational uh logic um and the influence that they have over the andrews labor government is is pretty clearly very powerful um and it's 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 astonishing actually how far historically this the the forestry division within the CFMEU will go to to block progress uh, on this issue. We saw some listeners may remember in two thousand and four um, the federal election campaign um, where Mark Latham before he was completely insane. Well, actually, I think he was always insane. <laughs> um, but he he went down to Tasmania and announced that, you know, logging of old growth forests in Tasmania was going to end, $800 million industry assistance package to make it happen. Um, And it was sort of political suicide because it was like a week before the election, I think, and suddenly the CFMEU started campaigning for John Howard. So you had this situation where a trade union was actually backing the bloke who brought in work choices simply because the opposition wanted to protect whole growth forest. So that's how far they'll go um, when it comes to campaigning against even a progressive Labor government. Mm. Um, 
uh, if, if they're going to move in this space. Um, but, you know, really the writing is on the wall and the change is inevitable. A transition uh, out of native forest and into plantations and non-timber sources of fibre, as I said before, it's needed not only to protect the environment but to actually create jobs, long-term jobs, into the future because the the status quo just can't go on forever. Um, the Andrews government convened a task force at the beginning of their term of government in 2015, um, which was a collection of uh, groups from the unions, industry and environment groups. And the idea was to have a stakeholder-based process that would look at options to, to solve this issue and protect forests and, uh, and, and transition jobs. Um, the process failed to deliver essentially because uh, the union and industry walked away from it. However, some key agreements were made in that um, process, which were that business as usual can't continue. There mm. needs to be change and there needs to be uh, new national parks to protect these forests from logging. Unfortunately, those key, key agreements have not been acted on um, and there's been no progress or decisive uh, action from this government to actually come up with a policy based on the key agreements that were made through that that task force process, which mm. which had all those union groups and environment groups working together to agree. Um so it's yeah, it's just sitting there, and I think um, this government, as progressive as they as, as they like to present themselves, um, it can't truly be considered a progressive government whilst they're logging and wood chipping uh, native forests to to make paper and driving wildlife towards extinction as a result. So um, ho- hopefully, it's something that they can actually pick up and show leadership on and take decisive action. But until then. Um, yeah, our environment's going to continue to pay the price. Mm. You are tuned into Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with Amy Mullins. I'm speaking at the moment with Ed Hill from the Goongarra Environment Centre in East Gippsland and uh, we've been talking about native forest logging, the history of it in Victoria, um, the policy realities, uh, the many stakeholders involved, the industry itself, the future of the industry and how it can be sustainable uh, in the long term. And now, Ed, um, we're going to close out our chat by talking about the state election campaign which is happening right now and in fact uh, it's kind of disturbing just how close election day is when I was looking at my calendar it's uh, Saturday the 24th of November and uh, I believe we are what day is it today the 13th so really close yeah Um, and not only has uh, Gecko, which is Goongarra, um, been campaigning, you've also been collaborating with other environmental groups like Friends of the Earth. Um, also, you know, there are many other um, in organisations that have been supporting um, the work that you guys are doing, like the Victorian National Parks Association, the Wilderness Society. Um, so it is a very coordinated uh, group of organisations. And um, some polling has been conducted by ReachTel uh, in late October and the sample size was uh, roughly 1,500 people um, across three electorates and uh, the sample size is normally over 1,000 is a good sample size um, in terms of predicting uh, what someone's views may be, what the broader population's views are and um, it would be great to talk a bit about 
what people think because that is, I guess, pretty important in terms of votes and how uh, parties position themselves and what they will eventually stand for or should stand for. Um, So, Ed... You particularly surveyed some inner city seats, a couple in particular, Paran and Richmond. And what kind of things did you find um, in terms of people's awareness of this issue? Like for a start, I guess, and I know you've been um, discovering this with door knocking as well, um, but then also uh, what their position is. Sure. Yeah. So there was, as you can imagine, overwhelming support um, for the protection of native forests and wildlife from logging, people are just shocked when they when they hear about it. If they don't know it's happening, uh, as soon as they find out, uh, they think it's ridiculous. And uh, and of course, support proposals um, to protect forests from logging. Um, so some of the results, like in Richmond, for example, eighty one percent of people surveyed. Um, uh, said that they think forests should be protected for for wildlife uh, and recreation. Um, and politically, very interestingly for that seat, 61% of people surveyed in Richmond said that they were more likely to vote for a candidate that supports uh, the protection of native forests from logging, um, which is pretty interesting because currently it's a it's a race between the greens and labor in that seat the liberals are not fielding a candidate and labor have are still yet to come out with any forest policy at all currently they have a logging policy Mm. um not a conservation or nature protection policy um so there's a you know sends a very strong message to the local member there richard Wynn, that um you know, you really need a policy on this if you're going to secure votes. Um, Paran was very similar results. Um, in, in fact, only 4% of people in Paran thought native forests should be logged. So, um, you know, very, very few people. Um, and again, very similar results. 60% of, of voters in that electorate were more likely to vote for a candidate that supports uh, forest protection. Um and we also polled Bentley, which is a Labor Liberal marginal seat um, out in, in in what they call the swinging sandbelt areas um, d- down down on the bay. And the results there were very very similar to the inner city. And what it shows is that this is not just an issue that people in the inner city are concerned about, and uh, people everywhere, particularly Labor voters um, and and Liberal voters and Vote, people with all sorts of voting intentions support the the protection of native forests from logging, and you know in Bentley it was it was basically the same, very similar results. Eighty one percent of people um, th- thought that forests should be places where uh, nature and wildlife uh, are protected. Mm. Um, so very similar results. It's not just an issue, um, you know, in the inner city suburban mums and dads want action on this issue uh, as well. Um, so. Yeah, the results show that there's just massive support and if the government are to act, then people are going to love it. Um, but unfortunately, we're 10 days out from an election and they have no policy uh, other than uh, a logging policy, um, which is clearly not in uh, the interests of, uh, of the people of Victoria who overwhelmingly support uh, the protection of these forests. Mm. I was also interested to see that 0.3% of the 
of Labor voters think forests should be used for logging. So that mm. particularly Labor voters, yeah. there is a massively low, low, low level of support for native forest logging and wood yep. chips. Absolutely. And it shows that if Labor are to actually do something, um, their people, aren't, they're not going to abandon them on this yeah. issue. Um, they've really got nothing to, to lose. lose. Mm. Um, but unfortunately, they have no policy um, and... Really, the the Greens are the only party that is actually speaking out uh, about this issue, mm. um, and that that have released a policy, um, quite a detailed one. Um, but you know, it's not too late. With ten days left of the campaign, um, and if it's Labor, a long time in politics, yeah, it is in an election campaign. Yeah. Um, but our, what our work in the in these electorates has shown is that. Uh, uh, movement on this issue is going to very much help um, whoever wins uh, these these seats um, because there is so much support for it um, and we've been getting out there and talking to people about it uh, we've, we've had literally thousands of conversations and uh, we've distributed about 120,000 leaflets across uh, electorates, across key marginal seats uh, with mm-hmm. information about where the parties stand on these issues um, and, and information about what's going on in our forests and how we can protect them. Um, so we've reached a lot of people um, and, yeah, we've, we've, we've created quite a bit of pressure. Um, uh, but, yes, still no nothing, still no policy from, from Labor uh, on this issue, just despite uh, the overwhelming support for them to move on it and despite the... Uh, the fact that uh, without a policy, some of these key uh, marginal seats may may be lost. Mm. And by having an election policy, it's actually really important because should they be elected to government, they then have a mandate to deliver on the policy mm. of which they've put forward. So, you know, it's one of those areas where it's, it's vital to have a, a position on the environment um, beyond logging uh, in order to get your work done. I mean, people can change their position, but it certainly helps to have said in the election, we promised this and mm. here we are delivering. Uh, it's just kind of one of the 101s of government. Absolutely. And they've had four years to come up with something. Um, in fact, the f- previous... Environment Minister Lisa Neville, she's now the Minister for Police and Water. It's an interesting combination. Yeah. Um, uh, she was the Environment Minister at the, uh, the beginning of this term of the Andrews Labor Government and went on the record saying that a new national park to protect forests from logging would happen in this term. Well, there's 10 days left of the term. Yeah. Uh, they haven't delivered and on And we're in caretaker government mode. We're in mode. caretaker government. And uh, so in terms of, you know, implementing promises that they gave last time, that hasn't happened and they've had four years to, to deal with this issue. Mm. Um, yeah, so if if they are to make any promises in the last 10 days of the campaign, um, we'll, we'll be watching very closely and holding them accountable to actually implementing them, uh, uh, whatever, whatever the shape of the parliament is um, after November. Mm. Mm. You know, this is um, raising a really important point, which is that at the last by-election that we had for Victoria, the Greens took a seat from Labor, um, you know, and, and this is 
really a sign that there are inner city marginal seats that are very much in play in terms of whether it goes uh, Labor or Green at this election. And it certainly could mean that if, um, you know, the Greens, for example, got more seats and um, Labor didn't expand their uh, seat numbers or or actually lost some, um, that there would perhaps be a minority government situation. I mean, this is something which I'm sure, um, given my understanding of uh, the relationship between the Greens and Labor, wouldn't be desirable for a Labor government in terms of their own preference to rule in their own right. You would think that on an issue like this where the Greens are out there on their own, standing strong, it is a typical Greens issue, which is the environment, that they would, um, you know, see that as being a very important area to, I guess, close that wedge and and stop it from being a really massive point of difference. Mm. Yeah, well, we'll see what happens. But if uh, the and the Greens are saying that they're all of the elements of their election platform. Um, will be on the table if they are in a situation where they're negotiating with Labor to form government in the event of a hung parliament or a minority government. And protecting native forests from logging is one of those key planks within their election platform. Um, so, yeah, it is a, it is a possibility um, that, that that will happen. Um, uh, but, yeah, really, Labor, Labor should just get on with it and... Um, just because it's the right thing to do, and they, I think, I think they know it, and eventually, mm-hmm. I think we'll, you know, hopefully get some change, um, some change in this space, and some some leadership that's just so far failed to um, to come about. Yeah, um, it. The other thing is, it, although it is the right thing to do, it also makes money, um, particularly tourism and th- mm. the industries that it creates and the jobs it creates, which is something of which you know, is important to any government, is their uh, economic standing. So, you know, if we want to um, see another benefit in that, it's also that people can then engage more with nature when national parks are created. Mm. Um, and, and as I've said on this show with others, who other scientists who found that even when you create national parks and protected areas, they don't necessarily end up being fully protected. Um, there's still forms of activity going on in these areas that do endanger the environment. So, um, you know, it should be kind of a bare minimum. Mm. Yeah, that's right. And uh, it's protection of these forests, particularly on Melbourne's doorstep, uh, the forests within the proposed Great Forest National Park, in the Yarra Ranges, um, Hillsville, Warburton, uh, Marysville areas, um, will make this city so much more livable and and set it up, you know, to have creating, creating a nature gateway on our doorstep. Uh, the Andrews government came out a week ago with a, a, an announcement to create a whole bunch of new urban parks, um, but nothing about protecting nature. Uh, the, you know, the creation of a lot of these urban parks uh, and little green corridors in the urban areas is great, mm. fantastic, but, again, it's incomplete without protection of, of nature and actually protecting these wonderful environmental assets that are on our doorstep. So the next logical step for them is to um, protect our native forests uh, on, the, on the edge of Melbourne and, um, and yeah, create that nature gateway just, just right on our, uh, on our doorstep. Mm. 
Now, Ed, um, as I said, I'm speaking with Ed Hill, campaigner at uh, the Goongarra Environment Centre. Ed, I want to just quickly raise with you something that's just been announced and come up. Um, The Forest Stewardship Council uh, is an international not-for-profit and um, many people may have seen their logo on things like packets of uh, paper so that um, and it's not on the reflex paper because it doesn't meet the FSC certification requirements but there has been um, news overnight about the FSC and uh, I guess a compromise solution which has been touted as being a positive thing for the environment and has involved a range of stakeholders to kind of come together in fact, as we were talking off air, it's not necessarily as fantastic as it's been touted and as the media have reported. What is the development essentially and, and what makes it either positive or negative? Sure. So there's been a national standard developed for the Forest Stewardship Council uh, in Australia and um, Forest Stewardship Council is widely regarded as sort of the sustainable benchmark of forestry certification and um, uh, Vic Forest has has tried to achieve uh, the Forest Stewardship Council uh, green tick uh, three times now and dismally failed every single time. The standard... uh, prevents logging in high conservation value areas, so prevents logging of old growth forests, of rainforests, of uh, habitat for endangered species. Um, and that's why Vic Forest has, has, you know, has failed so many times to achieve uh, this certification. The news overnight is that a new standard for the Australian context has been developed and that's been agreed upon by some environment groups and, uh, and industry groups. Um, but basically, there's no way that Vic Forests will ever achieve um, or meet the requirements of that standard whilst they are still clear fell logging, whilst they're logging old growth, whilst they're logging rainforest, whilst they're logging uh, habitat for endangered wildlife. Uh, they simply won't be able to meet that standard. So uh, if the government is serious about uh, improving Vic Forests' um, practices and um, uh, and uh, achieving the Forest Stewardship Council certificate which will provide access to desperately needed access to, to markets that mm. are demanding sustainably sourced products if the government's serious about that then they need to act decisively to protect uh, high environmental value forests from logging and they can the only way they can do that is by formally protecting them in parks and reserves um, so this new standard that basically industries all agreed that we we need to improve our practices we need access to these markets we need the FSC green tick the only way they're going to get it if there is if is if there's major industry reform and formal protection of high environmental value areas uh, in new national parks. Mm. Um, So hopefully this will lead to that, but the danger is that it will furtherly entrench native forest logging if any native forest logging operations are in fact given the green tick. Um, There's always... There's, there's, uh, it's it's quite controversial, and there's some examples where FSC has been awarded to some very shocking logging operations. So it's not, it's it's no silver bullet, but mm. it's certainly a, a a step towards improving the practices. 
Yeah, yeah. Now, Ed, before I let you go, I just wanted to ask, given that we've talked about parties and their policies, do the, does the Liberal Party have an environment policy yet? No, they don't. Um uh, it's actually very hard to find any of the Liberals' policies if you go to their if you go to their <laughs> I website. I did check that out. Like uh, I went there and there's nothing there. No. Um, so no, the Liberals actually have a have come out saying that they've they've ruled out uh, any new national parks to protect forests from logging. They're very much um, very much opposed. Uh, the Nationals, who they would form a coalition with, they've actually been campaigning to log our existing national parks. Yes. Um, so, the, but the Liberals have said that on the record that they'll come out with an environment policy before the election. Um, but really, in this space, Labor are not much better. Uh, uh, they still have no policy whatsoever uh, to protect native forests from logging. They currently have a logging policy. Mm. Um uh, and, yeah, the Greens are really the only party that has, uh, out of the three major parties, that has come out with a detailed policy and plan for, for how to get it done and how to protect forests. Mm. Um, so there's a website that people can can visit um, to get more information on this issue and more detail on the party's policies and, and where they stand. Uh, it's just voteforests.org.au. Uh, au. Um, this is a website that's been developed by Friends of the Earth and a bunch of other environment groups. Um, yeah, and there's lots of information there and you can go there and um, learn about the issue and make an informed uh, choice about how you can use your vote to protect forests from logging. And you can also... There's, there's, a, there's an action that you can take on that website where you can send your local MP uh, an email asking them to... telling them that protection of native forests is important to you. Mm. Yeah, and people underestimate the power of contacting a local member, but when it happens, and particularly in bigger volumes, and if someone puts the effort into wording their own letter in some way, um, it actually has a big impact. So it's a, it is, although it sounds like a really kind of old school method it's probably the most effect the most impactful method you could have apart from exercising your vote yeah that's right it can't and it, and it can't hurt um the more con- the more contacts that mps get over issues they they do they do take notice they do listen mm. uh and if they're getting nothing at all then they've really got nothing to to work with to to make the change so yeah engaging with your mp um is really important and can be really effective mm. and because the, uh, there are many parties trying to take the balance of power in the upper house, which will also be important on this issue, has anyone else come forward with a policy like the Reason Party, for example? Uh, the Reason Party are supportive of Fiona Patton's been a, a strong advocate for um, forest protection, um, but yeah, no minor parties do ha- have formal positions um, on it as yet. Re- Reason are pretty good on it. Um, uh, yeah, so, but really the only way that it's going to happen is if those who have the numbers in the House uh, to to actually protect these forests um, can actually come up with a policy. Um, and, you know, so that's either going to happen through one of the major parties coming out with it or uh, if the Greens hold the balance of power. Um, mm. 
Ed, it's been fantastic speaking with you in person, which is uh, great to see you and your face instead of talking down a phone line. And I really appreciate how much time you've taken to explain this issue and um, hopefully better inform all of us as to what's happening and um, I guess help us to make a decision about what matters to us and you know whether this is a, a issue for us to be voting on. So thank you. Thanks a lot, Amy. That was Ed Hill, campaigner at the Goongarra Environment Centre. And as he said, you can head to the Vote Forests website at voteforests.org.au. You can also check out um, the Gecko Facebook page. They uh, post up quite a lot of information about this issue there. Three Triple R. This is Uncommon Sense that you are listening to and my name is Amy Mullins. Now I am really pleased to have with me in the studio Dr Erin Richmond. Erin is a research fellow at the School of Chemistry at Monash University and uh, she has published and is the lead author of an article called A Diverse Suite of Pharmaceuticals Contaminate Stream and Riparian Foodwebs. And uh, there are some of her colleagues also attached to this research, but Erin has been leading the charge, wading in the rivers, um, I saw, and, you know, really leading on this um, research. And uh, I welcome her now. Hi, Erin. Hey, Amy. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you in. And and um, I, I'm really interested in this topic and it's good that you have um, co-written this article in the conversation, um, which is based on your research and um, you're co-authoring with Mike Grace there. And uh, the title of that article is um, very revealing of what we're going to be discussing. It's Drugs in Bugs, 69 Pharmaceuticals Found in Invertebrates Living in Melbourne's Streams. Um, First of all, what uh, sparked your interest in chemistry and studying this kind of topic, which wouldn't necessarily be something that people would think of? Like, I I certainly wasn't thinking that our rivers and waterways would be, you know, populated with so many different chemical compounds. Yes, so I am. I'm actually a freshwater ecologist, so I um, I don't have a lot of, of, of chemistry background, but I became interested in these drugs because essentially they're what we call bioactive. So they're, they're designed to have an effect on the people who take them. So they treat um, common ailments. So you take a Panadol for a headache, for example. But what we didn't know is, and sort of what we as scientists had actually previously found out was there's lots of these drugs are actually found in surface waters across the world. And we've actually known that now for near on two deca- decades. But what we didn't know was whether or not these, um, these active pharmaceutical drugs were making their way into the food chains and then what effects they could potentially be having on the aquatic insects that live in these streams and then, of course, the animals that feed on insects and then steps up the food chain. Mm. And what are some of the bugs that we're talking about? Like, c- can you name some of them so that we can get an idea? Yeah, so they're all at sort of the larval stage in the stream. So we have things like um, caddisfly larvae, also dragonfly and mayfly larvae, all the way through to things like worms and snails and stuff like that as well. And is the reason why it's at the larvae stage because of the um, environment that it's in, which is a really moist kind of... 
area or is there something else to it? Yeah, so insects actually undergo metamorphosis. So they fly out of the stream eventually as winged adults. So we see a lot of midges at night flying around the lights at our summer barbecues and those sorts of things. And they actually originate in a lot of our freshwater streams. So how does a scientist capture these types of insects in order to study them? So it's pretty simple, really. We just go out there with um, a lot of nets and we cause a disturbance on the stream bottom and collect all the insects that fly that sort of end up washing into our nets and then we're then able to sort them while we're there by the stream um, and then look at them under the microscope later in the lab to identify them. Mm. So um, in terms of the research that you've done in Victoria, what are the kind of areas and river streams that you were looking at? And, I mean, are there any that are, I guess close to where we are. Yeah, so um, what we found out is a primary source of these pharmaceuticals into the environment is through our wastewater. Uh, So we set uh, set out to look at six sites across eastern Melbourne. Uh, So we looked at sites that varied with their sort of degree of how influenced they were by wastewater. So we had one site that was in a really sort of urban area. We had a site that was downstream of a high-capacity wastewater treatment plant and then one that was all the way into sort of the Dandenong Ranges National Park where we didn't actually essentially expect to see any pharmaceutical contamination in this site. Yeah, and for people who aren't aware, um, wastewater is something um, which comes from humans. It's our waste. And I guess people would assume that um, there are water facilities and, and treatment facilities that would purify or remove you know, toxic compounds or chemical compounds from um, the waste to to the greatest degree possible. Why is it that those processes aren't um, catching those compounds that we're talking about? Yeah, so if we start back with us, when we take a drug, um, not all of that drug is always necessarily used within our system. So we end up excreting it out typically in our urine and that ends up in wastewater treatment facilities. And these plants aren't always necessarily designed to break down specific compounds. And we're talking possibly, you know, over a thousand different drugs ending up in these treatment plants. Mm. So it could be quite expensive and the technology needed to target each individual compound to break it down can be quite difficult. But what we do know is these treatment plants are successful at removing some of them just through the, the, the processes within the plants. But a lot of these pharmaceuticals then pass through a lot of these processes and end up in our streams and rivers and receiving waters with treated wastewater. So how how does that wastewater get from the plant into the stream? Because, I mean, I would assume it would have been common sense to direct it away from waterways. Well, a lot of this wastewater is treated to an extent, mm. so um, it's therefore deemed to be safe to discharge into our environment. Um, and fortunately, for what we're, we're seeing is, is these levels of pharmaceuticals. And I have to say, too, these are at much lower doses than we would take as humans. So there are at quite small doses. But what we've found over some previous research is that at the doses that we're seeing in the environment, which are very uh, quite small concentrations, they're actually causing sublethal effects. So they're not causing any sort of toxic endpoint or anything like mm. that. So they won't actually kill off anything in our streams. Yes, but presumably, even if they're not killing off um, animals or invertebrates, they're altering them in some way, their behaviour, their um, uh, capacity to think if they're if they're if there are thoughts it's kind of hard to tell when you know humans are still at the early stages of understanding a range of things like even bees for example there's a lot of things we still don't know about them um you know how do we know what kind of effects or do we know what kind of effects 
these uh, chemical compounds could have on invertebrates but and also the animals that ingest the invertebrates. Yeah, and, and this is certainly just the tip of the iceberg. So we've done, um, part of my lab has done previous studies where we've looked at um, adding antidepressants to stream ecosystems to see what effects it does have. And what we found is that fluoxetine, which is a common mm. antidepressant or Prozac, actually can inhibit uh, photosynthesis in algae. So it can um, you know, reduce that by 50%. It can also alter the insect's life stages so it can speed up insect emergence, which is that movement from the larvae to the winged adult. Um, and other studies have also found that when you dose or give antidepressants to fish, it actually makes them more docile. So there was a study that was done by some of our co-authors that was published in Science a couple mm. of years ago where they actually uh, looked at um, fish in a natural population and exposed them to a type of antidepressant and found that they were sort of more docile and easily preyed upon on the, on the um, lake edges of the st- where they were studying these fish. Mm. So we're in the early stages, you're saying, of really understanding the impact that these drugs could have. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, you've got a list here of um, the different pharmaceuticals that you identified and the varying levels that were present at the streams. Um, did you find those levels? Like, did you set out and go, okay, here are the um, drugs we want to actually test for and then um, measure those levels? Is that how you find out, the, I guess, the range yeah. of drugs that are there? Yeah, so we had a, a test suite of almost 100 different drugs that we were able to detect and, and measure for. So we actually ended up detecting 69 different drugs across all of our streams. Um, and these were in various different concentrations in the insects. But what was sort of most notable was that downstream of wastewater treatment plants, we were seeing the highest concentrations. Um, and as I mentioned, we did see some uh, some drug contamination in our sites in Lyrebird Creek, which is in the Dandenong Ranges National Park. That was at much, much lower concentrations. Mm. Um, I was interested to look at the graph, which has a range of uh, drugs here. And some people may have heard of, others may not. But there are some that are concerning um, such as tramadol, which is a very strong pain reliever. It's um, part opioid. And that was in um, a decent level. There were also things like oxazepam, which is an anti-anxiety drug, um, pizotifen, which causes uh, huge amounts of drowsiness and weight gain in humans, metazapine, which is used often in the elderly to put them to sleep um, and causes appetite um, uh, an appetite stimulant. Um, there's also uh, antifungals there, which are very common. Um, azelastine antihistamine, which is used for hay fever. Uh, there's just an insane amount of codeine. I mean, if if a human was ingesting, a, I guess, a, a gamut of these, they would be um, in big trouble. And, uh, you know, obviously humans have a, a larger body weight and so they can sustain higher doses of these kind of medications but for example you know in a human you certainly wouldn't be combining the drugs i've just mentioned um that would mean they would um if taken a significant dose stop breathing um so i'm just wondering then when you're thinking about i guess the range of pharmaceuticals that you found are present um whether we understand any of the ways that not only side effects but drug interactions could have on invertebrates and other animals 
Yes, certainly. And these are, again, sort of next steps into where we want to take our research. Um, and as you mentioned, I mean, if, you, if we were to turn up to a doctor and say that we're taking 69 different drugs, they would probably have a heart attack and there'd be some adverse reactions for us, certainly. So we have to think about these invertebrates that are exposed to 69 different pharmaceuticals and are potentially passing them on to platypus or fish that feed on these insects. Um, and not to mention, too, as I mentioned, insects undergo metamorphosis and fly out of the stream. Mm. So riparian spiders are also exposed to these drugs as well, which is then has, has implications, of course, then for birds and bats and, and these other animals that feed on flying insects and spiders. Um, but what is most concerning is that currently in the literature, most studies look at single compound effects and how that affects behaviour or how that affects ecosystem processes. But mm. the next step is to look at these drug interactions and how, for example, 69 different drugs would influence uh, life stages in aquatic insects. Yeah. Um, I'm speaking with Dr. Erin Richmond uh, about a very important topic, which is drugs in bugs. And, um, and one of the animals that you highlight as being um, really present in these waterways are platypuses and they are kind of, it is like their habitat. Um, You see quite a lot of them. There are also other um, animals and mammals and, you know, different um, animals that would be, I guess, around the area, not even in the waterways, but just generally existing in this uh, ecosystem. When, in terms of the platypus, um, you raised the fact that for the body weight of the platypus um, that they were taking really a substantial amount of antidepressants unknowingly. What, like, what was the degree to which you um, estimated that a platypus might ingest um, you know, a certain level of antidepressants? So we based our calculations off the insects in our stream and the concentrations we were able to detect. And platypus are specialised to feed on aquatic insects. That makes up the majority of their diet. So we were able to take their um, daily insect need or what the amount of food they needed to sustain themselves uh, and combine that with the information we found out about drug concentrations and calculate what portion of a daily dose of an antidepressant, for example, a platypus might be exposed to. Um, I must say, too, we, we have to use a bit of caution with these estimates because we don't know if these drugs are actually bioavailable to the platypus. Mm. We don't know if through food, their food source, they're actually getting a dose of these drugs. Uh, again, it's sort of more future avenues for future research at this moment. Yeah, and the fact that we are at the early stages is probably a sign that um, things are concerning because we can't say uh, yes or no as to the effects or impacts that these drugs could be having. And it would be great to rule out its effects, but it would also be important to know whether they are having a big impact. Yes, certainly. And it's, you know, the most significant findings from this study is, and the things that we need to remember is that these effects are typically sublethal, so they're not killing what we're seeing in the streams, but also that this is the first study to really show that a large diverse suite of drugs is entering aquatic food webs and is Mm. also being passed through into riparian spiders and then of course has implications for animals that feed on these insects. Yeah, yeah, that's a really great point. Um, Erin, in terms of the work that you're doing at the moment, what do you think would be your per- like research um, focus uh, springing from this journal article? You know, do you have plans to um, conduct further studies and I guess have an idea of what types of things you could be looking at? 
Yeah, certainly. I mean, this study only looked at six different streams around Melbourne. Uh, we'd like to expand this to include a range of different streams and also look at potentially treated um, wastewater that we use for irrigation purposes and so on, so expanding out of stream channels. Um, and, of course, the next logical step would be to try and look at platypus and to actually see if we can detect levels of pharmaceuticals, obviously non-destructively, within these animals living in the streams. Mm. Yeah, and that probably would involve um, capturing some of those animals to be able to study them. Yes, certainly. And I think um, from what we understand, it would just be as simple as taking a blood sample yeah. from a platypus. Yeah. Um, you were saying off air that there aren't really that, there isn't really that rigor around studying insects because they're not kind of seen as the um, emotional or cognitive equivalent of a platypus. Um, and so I guess the, the research um, ethics or boundaries are different for insects. Why, like, do you think that should be the case or, you know, in your study of insects and your understanding of them, you know, what are your thoughts on that? I, I have a very fond love of aquatic insects. So yeah. I, I think, it, of course, it's, you know, we don't require any ethics to study or measure an insect living in the stream. Mm. Um, but they're amazing creatures. They basically provide that sort of basal recess so that next step up from algae and primary producers we have things like insects which you know contribute to ecosystem functioning so they're integral to how our stream systems function mm. yeah um erin it's been fantastic to speak with you and i really appreciate you coming in to explain some of this research and if people want to follow your research and find out more about it could they um follow you on twitter for example or um, connecting with the the team that you've got at Monash? Yes, certainly. So I'm on Twitter. Um, it's Erin Richmond. Pretty simple to find. Yeah. Um, also, um, reply to the conversation article. I'm mm. more than happy to chat through that source. Yeah. They, there is always a really insightful and intellectual comments thread because the people who read the conversation are very, you know, considered and uh, like engaging in that kind of debate. So that's really great. Thank you so much, Erin, for coming in. Thank you for having me. That was Erin Richmond, Dr. Erin Richmond, who is a research fellow at the School of Chemistry at Monash University. And as I said, the article on the conversation uh, is Drugs in Bugs, 69 Pharmaceuticals Found in Invertebrates Living in Melbourne's Streams. And I can post that up for you so you can um, have a chat with Erin about that if you're interested. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.